My name is Dr. Matt Luckett, and welcome to the Horse Thief Historian Podcast, where we talk about all things horse stealing related and other stuff because that's sort of a limited topic. This series is part of my 17B lecture course, United States History from 1865. Okay, hi everybody. Uh, so, I uh, hope everyone's doing well. Uh, we'll talk about progressivism today. I should probably start time stamping these lectures because it's, um, you know, still COVID summer and nobody knows uh, heads from tails, up from down, uh, Wednesday from, I think it's Wednesday. Am I right? Is it Wednesday? Yeah. Yeah. That I guess it has some material importance to me because uh, Thursday morning is is trash and recycling day. So uh, I suspect you know if I don't pay attention to that, then we're gonna have a uh, for those of you who are Shell Silverstein fans, a Sarah Cynthia uh, Sylvia Stout situation in the morning. Um, so I better uh, get on that. Um, so, okay, well, speaking of progressives, uh, speaking of garbage, uh, the progressives are all about cleaning up society. Uh, nice transition. So let's talk about that. This is actually sort of two lectures. So uh, just for those of you who might be a little bit confused, uh, I just have the PowerPoint uh, for progressivism. Now that includes the keywords for World War I. So actually, if we look at this here, um, we're only really talking about four keywords today. Uh, and then tomorrow when we do World War I, uh, we'll do the other ones. So the reason I'm kind of splitting that up is because um, there's a little bit of like, like I don't want to say that I, I have room to spare uh, in a six week class in American history because I don't. Um, but there are sort of little pockets uh, of air that sort of were created by redistributing certain subjects and certain things. So uh, for instance, you know, I wanna talk about the Great Depression and World War II in the same week because I think they're, they're part of kind of a similar narrative. So we'll be talking about a lot of stuff next week, right? We'll be talking about uh, the 20s. We'll be talking about the Great Depression. We'll be talking about the New Deal. We'll be talking about the rise of totalitarianism and Nazism. We'll be talking about World War II. Those are all huge topics, right? So um, whereas like this week, it's progressivism and conservationism and uh, so since we have a little more time this week to kind of luxuriate uh, in some of these other things that I think ordinarily I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time with, uh, I think what I'll do tomorrow is is I'll do my um, sort of my longer uh, durée World War One lecture because uh, you know, I, I think that's important and you know there there aren't a lot of students that do both World History two and U.S. History two so. Uh, I'll, I like to kind of do my World War I and World War II lectures uh, for both of them and kind of do them both like in, total in totality. I'll spend a little more time on the U.S. history portion of it, obviously, since this is U.S. history, but um, it's, it's just, it's good knowledge to have and it's just good cultural literacy 
you know, to to know who the central powers were during World War One and and that sort of thing. So we'll we'll talk about that tomorrow. Um, and in that way, we're not so instead of like squeezing everything into one lecture, we'll we'll just kind of split it in half and kind of our take our time a little bit more with it. But um, I'll try to avoid the hour and a half type of deal that I've been doing the last couple of lectures. So I'll just tell me to shut up uh, if I get too bad. So, uh, so the reason why I like to, to really package uh, progressivism and World War I together uh, doesn't have so much to do with the fact that World War I was like an inherently progressive phenomenon. Uh, because it wasn't, right? I mean, it killed millions of people. It was a uh, long, dark, terrible struggle, uh, brutalized and traumatized tens of millions of people across the world. But there's nothing progressive about that, right? But um, I think what happened towards the end of that with Woodrow Wilson uh, and the League of Nations was very much a progressive vision. And the tumult that occurred because of World War I um, helped lead in part to the passage of the 19th Amendment, uh, which obviously granted women the right to vote over 100 years ago now. So it's been over 100 years. Um, you know, should have been over, you know, much longer than that, obviously. But um, that's, that's a pretty significant milestone. Um, so in, in some ways, like World War I is sort of a capstone uh, to this to this period of time. And that's also the case because when the 1920s start, uh, after Woodrow Wilson uh, ceases to be president, uh, the last couple of years of his term were actually uh, fraught with, with peril. He suffers a stroke. Uh, there are rumors that Edith Wilson is, is secretly you know, running the United States. Uh, it's sort of like a shadow uh, you know, president. Um, so 1920, Americans elect uh, Warren Harding, uh, one of the worst presidents in American history, at least until recently. Um, just an all-around terrible, awful uh, president in every respect. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll talk about him next week. But uh, that definitely represents the end of the progressive era because Harding was anything but progressive uh, in outlook and temperament. Um, and so on and so forth. So what is progressivism? I talked a little bit about this today. All right, I should say yesterday, sorry. Um, and one of the reasons why I think it's really important to uh, talk about what a few people, and I'll, I'll mention this again, because I, I talked about this yesterday, um, a few people in the six week class, and, and probably I'm sure a few people in the seventh, seven week class will also say the same thing. Uh, the progressives uh, opposed robber barons because they consolidated money. Um, that wasn't really a traditionally progressive notion. The progressives didn't like the fact that robber barons eliminated competition. Not so much that they were getting rich. They had no problem with that. Um, you know, their big issue was, was uh, the lack of competition. Uh, so in a capitalist society, you know, you need to have competition. That's what keeps everyone honest. You know, that's what keeps prices down. But the problem with the robber barons is that they were able to take advantage of some of these resource bonanzas. They were able to take care, uh, take advantage of deflation, some of these structural issues. And really they're just smart, avaricious people. 
right, who were able to take advantage of, of these situations and consolidate their control over these different industries like oil and, and steel and things like that. Um, so that's what they were opposed to. Uh, and that's just, that's kind of an important thing to note because I've, I've seen before, not necessarily like recently, but I've seen before people make the suggestion that the progressive movement uh, in the early 20th century is part and parcel with progressivism today. And uh, I would really push back on that uh, because progressivism a hundred years ago was a very, very different phenomenon. Uh, for one thing, it was a little more top-down. Uh, progressivism, the progressive movement, I should say, uh, as distinct from progressivism today, uh, the progressive movement was made up largely of middle-class people, intellectuals, professionals, business people, people like Teddy Roosevelt, who was born with two silver spoons in his mouth, uh, you know, from a patrician New York family. Um, you know, he was a progressive because of ideology, not because he was poor or rich or whatever, but, you know, a lot of other people were sort of in a similar boat, like Pinchot, who was also rich. Um, so, you know, it was a lot of professional, um, you know, bureaucratic, um, rich, wealthy, well-educated people uh, were part of the progressive movement. That, so, um, like, one of the, the, the connections I've seen made was that a couple of the people in the progressive movement were eugenicists. Um, well, yeah, that's that's certainly true because this is the early 20th century and people are generally just awful, right? They're, they're racist, they don't give a fig about um, LGBT people, you know, or women's rights more generally. Um, you know, that's, that's who we're dealing with. So yeah, naturally you're gonna have some eugenicists in that bunch. Um, so you can't really make that connection ideologically between the progressive movement and progressives today. So, you know, people like Dinesh D'Souza like to sort of, um, you know, point that arrow um, from one thing to the other, you know, and sort of like guilt by association. Um, similarly with the Democratic Party, you know, which is the party of Jim Crow, uh, and people now making that argument, well, it's still the party of Jim Crow because it was the party of Jim Crow. Well, that's not true because of this thing called party realignments and, you know, the 1960s. Uh, so anyway, I just want to put that out there because that's one of the misapprehensions that I've, I've seen people make. And one of the reasons why uh, history is so important to learn, because we need to have that context. And without having that historical context, uh, it's a lot easier for people to sort of take advantage of people's uh, lack of information uh, and lack of, of knowledge about it. One last thing I'll say about this, I, and I'm, I'll get off my soapbox, I promise. Uh, one thing I saw yesterday, just yesterday on Twitter, this is why I keep talking because I spend way too much time on Twitter. Um, I saw somebody, or sorry, it was Tim Kaine, uh, the senator from Virginia who was uh, Hillary Clinton's vice presidential candidate in 2016. And he said more or less that the United States invented slavery. So Charlie Kirk and Talking Points Memo, all these different like right-wing publications and voices and things like that, Suddenly, they're all on, oh, blah, 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 the United States didn't invent slavery. You know nothing about African slavery. The Greeks had slaves. The Romans had slaves. Africans had slaves. American Indians had slaves. Well, yeah, they did, right? But here's where the context is important. Um, because context is what sort of elucidates this issue and makes it have um, 
sort of clarifies things a little bit. Uh, the United States, no, it did not invent slavery in the context of, you know, we did not invent owning people. Um, and if anything, uh, if you're going, if you're like a space alien uh, coming from outer space and you're comparing um, United States slavery with Caribbean slavery, uh, Caribbean slavery is much, much deadlier, has a far higher lethality uh, than United States slavery, right? Um, that being said, though, Caribbean slavery ended a lot sooner. Um, and the United States slavery uh, didn't only look at, at slaves as chattel, meaning property, uh, which is sort of a, a an important component um, associated with slaves that wasn't really recognized as much in Rome and Greece and things like that. Like they didn't really count. Um, if you're if you had slaves, you didn't count those slaves as uh, part of your financial ledger, for instance, like Southern slave owners did. Um, but also just the the capitalist um, and, and the productive requirements uh, put on slaves uh, by Southern plantation owners um, make it a far different enterprise. Growing all these different crops for profit, uh, selling those, those crops for profit, then using that to buy more land, invest in more cotton gins, and obviously buy more slaves, using slaves as a commodity uh, in and of themselves, uh, as opposed to uh, people who you own and are in control of, but there, there's there's a deep literature there, and and I'm definitely just scratching the surface. Um, but there's a lot of differences between what the United States did with respect to slavery and what other nations did with respect to slavery. Um, and I think what Tim Kaine was trying to do was sort of recognize those differences and suggest, however. Uh, succinctly, or maybe even inartfully, uh, that the United States uh, was the first, uh, and I don't know a whole lot about Brazilian slavery, but possibly the only nation in world history um, to make slaves a significant part of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and that's basically what they did. Um, I guess you make an argument for Caribbean slaves doing that with sugarcane, but sugarcane wasn't a uh, productive component. It wasn't an input with industrialization. You know, people use it for, for tea and coffee. Um, whereas like cotton uh, was a, a necessary input uh, in the industrial revolution makes textiles and things like that. So, uh, and therefore you're then viewing slaves as well as cotton, as well as textiles, as well as, uh, mass manufacturing of those textiles as all components uh, within this, you know, industrial industrializing uh, process. So uh, anyway, that's you know, I, I don't want to get ranty too much about this. I've I've kind of already done that, um, but that's just something that happened just yesterday uh, on Twitter, and you know, an unassuming a uh, person might see that and say, you know, see what like Charlie Kirk and, and other boneheads were saying and say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, there were slaves. Tim Kaine's an idiot. But, you know, just we need to sort of understand that context and we need to really, you know, find out what makes slavery different in the United States versus other um, countries and, and other civilizations and things like that. Uh, one great book that talks about this is James Brooks' Captives and Cousins. 
fantastic book. Uh, talks all about American Indian slavery in the Southwest. Tremendous book. A little bit of a difficult read, um, you know, if you're not like a, a, a practicing historian, but it's it's good and it's significant. Um, I'll say one last thing. Uh, please excuse my language. Um, it's a lot easier to shit in a pool than clean it. So if you ever watched the movie Caddyshack, you know what I mean. Um, so it's a lot easier to make a statement like Tim Kaine's an idiot for saying that, you know, slavery, uh, Americans didn't slavery because Africans had it and Romans had it and Greeks had it and so forth. It's easier to say that than it is to debunk it. So just sort of bear that in mind uh, as future information consumers, that it's a lot easier for some pundit to go on TV and make a inelegant, factually imprecise and mostly wrong and out of context uh, statement. It's easier for them to make that statement than for an historian to come out and debunk it. So just bear that in mind, just sort of remember that uh, going forward as, as uh, people of the world. Okay, uh, rant over. Um, back to progressivism, which is what we're supposed to be talking about today. Uh, the progressives believed in self-improvement. Somebody's calling me. Hey, can you call your mom? Your mom's trying to call me. Sorry, that's my mother-in-law. Um, don't, don't tell her I wouldn't answer the phone. Uh, so, so the progressive movement is, is also distinct from progressivism today. And the progressivism today, I think, uh, sort of emphasizes a wide variety of, of different uh, advancements and hmm? it's already uh, a wide variety of different policy proposals. Um, it's equity, uh, it's equality, um, it's it's a social safety net, you know, things like that that we, we typically associate with like democratic, you know, left democratic, Bernie Sanders, that kind of thing, right? That's, that's progressivism. Progressivism in the early 20th century context, though, it's a little more self-help uh, than, than government assistance or safety net. Bear in mind that, that the, there really is no, like, quote-unquote, government safety net uh, in the early 20th century, right? People haven't really conceived of that uh, as Americans until really, like, the New Deal. Um, so that's not really... A thing yet in the public consciousness. I think they're ordering lunch for us, so that means lunch is coming, which means I don't want to be talking forever. So, okay, I'll, I'll pick it up. Uh, so many interruptions. You gotta love teaching at home online. Um, always fun. Uh, so, by self help, they believe that by helping people help themselves, uh, you would make a better society. It's a little bit puritanical like that. You know, the Puritans were, um, you know, they differentiated between positive liberty and negative liberty. So uh, negative liberty was being able to do whatever the hell you wanted. Positive liberty was, you know, sort of living within the confines of, of congregationalist Puritan society. Progressives were sort of a, a similar type of thing, right? So that's one of the reasons why so many progressives were also, uh, you know, temperance, uh, prohibition. You know, they, they're part of the... Um, uh, the prohibitionist movement, right? They want to prohibit alcohol. Um, so 
there's a reason for that, right? So the, the progressive logic uh, behind banning alcohol, it really comes down to the fact that alcohol uh, deters people from being their best selves. And really for a lot of people, it makes them worse, right? People get drunk, they go home, they abuse their families or spouses, they get in cars and drive home and get in accidents, uh, they lose their jobs. So, you know, if you're not, you know, if you're an alcoholic, which I think today we would recognize as a, um, as a condition, uh, as opposed to a personality trait, it's just, it's, it's an illness that, that requires treatment and love and compassion as opposed to, um, you know, this is a personality fault of yours. Uh, I think the progressives would have seen that as a personality fault. Uh, if you don't drink, then you'll be a better person. So that's not necessarily, I think, the logic that we would fault today, but that's how they viewed it. Uh, this, a similar thing goes with parks. The progressives were really into parks, not just national parks, but say, for instance, Frederick Law Olmsted, who built Central Park and built parks all around the country. Part of that was all about self-improvement, the idea of being able to go out and get a breath of fresh air. Um, and that makes people better. It improves their lives. It makes them happier, healthier. Um, so it's a, it's a more of a holistic self-improvement, be a better person sort of view of the world. Um, in a lot of ways, the progressive movement sort of comes on the heels of the populist defeat. Uh, the populists were farmers, they were workers, they were miners, they were southern planters, they were, um, you know, sort of the, the, sort of the same people that we would associate, associate today with populism. You know, the white, non-college educated voters, you know, that CNN loves to like, they'll go to Ohio and interview like eight of them, you know, and this is why Trump's still popular. Um, so that, that's sort of like the, the foundation of the populist movement. Um, sorry, the, the, but the populist movement doesn't, I mean, it, it gets a lot of uh, credence. It wins several state houses, sends a lot of representatives to Congress and things like that, but it never really seizes control of the federal government. Uh, and William Jennings, um, Brian sees to that when he loses the, the 1896 election to William McKinley. But the pro progressives sort of pick up that mantle. And progressivism is a much more, um, it, it has like the stamp of, uh, it's seal of approval to educated on it. So it's the educated saying like, well, th there's things that need to change. We need to be more anti-monopoly. We need to increase competition. We need to make people's lives better, but these ideas are going to originate from us. And so there's actually kind of a bougie element to it, right? It's, it's like a very bourgeois uh, sort of movement compared to progressivism today. You know, um, in, the, in the parlance of our times, uh, the progressives were Karens. It was a Karen movement, okay? Uh, let me see your manager about what's going on in the world. Um, that's progressivism in the early 20th century. So I should, I should write that down. It's a movement of Karens. Um, so they're not averse to spending money. Uh, they're not averse to consumerism, that's for sure, since they are not at all anti-capitalist. They believe in making money, spending money, enjoying money, um, gaining wealth. Uh, gaining wealth is nice because the more wealth you have, the less you have to worry about other stuff, right? 
So, you know, being wealthy is certainly far better than uh, not being wealthy. So be wealthy, um, get that money uh, and, and, and make that dollar. So consumerism is, is sort of a part of this. Um, consumerism, spending money uh, to be better. You know, there's nothing really new about that. I mean, if anybody's ever bought a self-help book, you know, you kind of understand what I mean. Um, you know, and so progressivism and consumerism, there's a lot of overlap there. Um, how can you consume to become a better person? Or really, like, what should you consume in order to help you become a better person? So people are buying more and more and more things uh, that lend themselves to uh, more hobbies, more uh, physical pursuits. Uh, mountain climbing is a really big thing in the late 19th century. Uh, mountain climbing, what's like, here's the logic, right? You go back a generation and you tell like some farmer or some middle-class person in the 1860s, like, hey, let's go climb that mountain. They'll look at you and they'll think, what are you nuts? We just like dynamited a tunnel through that damn mountain, put a railroad through there. Why the hell would you want to climb it? It's cold. Why would you want to be cold? Right? And that makes sense. But later on, people are like, well, no, I'm going to climb that mountain, you know, and prove something to myself. Um, and I, I tried to climb Mount Shasta a few years ago and didn't acclimate properly. So I didn't quite make it. Um, so I, I get the, the, the drive behind that, you know, to, to want to scale this peak. So mountain climbing becomes a thing. So people are climbing mountains. The thing about climbing mountains though is that you need stuff, right? Like John Muir would just go out there and, and put his hands up the Mount Rocky Crags and stuff like that. But you're still gonna need crampons. You're gonna need an ice pick. You're gonna need pretty good shoes, right? You're gonna need rope. You're gonna need um, camping gear. So all these things, you know, you don't just invent them. You have to buy them. So you need to go to like 19th century REI and buy this stuff, but you can't buy it unless someone's making it and you can't make it unless there's a need for it. So in the late 19th century, you start to see sporting goods. You start to see recreational horse riding. You start to see recreational mountain climbing, uh, camping, uh, hunting, fishing, all these new pursuits uh, become ways of getting people outdoors, get away from the hustle and bustle of the office, get out of the smoggy, coal-infused city and, you know, breathe some fresh air, see some trees, you know, embrace the, the sort of romanticism uh, of life, you know, in the country uh, and life in the wild. Uh, and so companies and factories, you know, really step up uh, in order to sort of provide uh, the different things that people would need in order to do that. The problem with that, though, is you can't really know what a crampon is or what an ice pick is unless someone is telling you what those things are. Uh, so one of the really key innovations of the progressive era uh, is a whole new way of, of consuming goods. One of those is mail order catalogs. Mail order catalogs are incredibly important. Uh, mail, the Sears Roebuck catalog was the first and it was the biggest one. Uh, the Sears Roebuck catalog was to the late 19th century what Amazon is to the early 20th. 
okay? Um, it's a place to get ideas. It's a place to learn about products. Um, people aren't just born with consumer knowledge, right? They buy magazines, they buy catalogs, they go online, they read reviews. Um, it's the same thing with the Sears Roebuck catalog. It introduces people all across the country to all these new products, to what is available there. Uh, like if you look at this advertisement here, Sears Roebuck catalog furniture department, and you just, this image here of like the endless sort of array, it looks like an Ikea, right? With like one model living room after another and all the furniture in it. Um, and that's exactly what they started to do. You know, here's a thousand pieces of furniture. How do we make your average everyday human um, aware of and exposed to these thousand different pieces of furniture? You don't just say, here's 500 sofas that we're selling. You know, you have different living rooms and you showcase the things that you're trying to sell. So that's why when you go to Ikea, you're not just looking at the catalog, you know, or, oh, I'm going to get a, sorry if anybody is Norwegian or Swedish, I, I apologize. Um, I'm actually, yeah, you know what, I'm 4% Swedish, shut up. Um, <laughs> one of my great, great grandparents is from Sweden. Uh, they're shaking their fist at me right now and flipping me the bird. Um, so that's okay. Um, my, my German half is, is applauding silently. Uh, so anyway, um, to, to be half German and teach world history is always fun. Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, <laughs> uh, I forgot where I was going with that. Uh, so it's like going to Ikea, right? So the Sears Robot catalog does that and it opens up a national marketplace. So regardless of where you live, uh, in the country, you get a Sears Roebuck catalog and you're exposed to all these different things. Um, telephones uh, expedite this process. It's now a lot easier to you know, mail in your order or even phone it in. Uh, and then you can then phone in uh, or telegraph your order uh, to the supplier. The supplier will then ship it out. So telephones and telegraphs make that process easier, not just doing it all by mail. Um, so there's a whole bunch of innovations that absolutely revolutionized consumerism during this period. One big thing that I like to talk about, not specifically like usually in this lecture, but as a Western historian and somebody who studies ranching, is the refrigerated car. The refrigerated car uh, is massive in terms of what it's able to do. All of a sudden you can get produce from South America. You can get oranges from Florida. Uh, you can get non-seasonal fruits and vegetables, and you can have them all delivered to where you are, thanks to the refrigerated car. Um, you're not just stuck with, with you know, buying what's grown down the road. But another thing that it does is it absolutely transforms um, the beef industry, the meat industry. So before, uh, if, you're, if you wanted beef, what you would do is you would go to a butcher. Uh, the butcher would give you the cut of meat that you wanted, uh, when the butcher runs out of meat, they would then order cows, right? They would order steers. They would order those cows and steers. They would then br be brought to the shop. You would then butcher them, like Ken's a butcher. Um, those would then be raised in the Great Plains or in Kentucky or you know, someplace that, that has pasturage and where you know, cattle are then raised and fed and things like that. So that's sort of the, the economic cycle. But butchers are expensive. Uh, butchers are skilled professionals. Uh, they train, they apprentice for a long period of time. Um, so, you know, they're, it's something that you spend a lot of time sort of perfecting that skill. Uh, so they expect to be paid accordingly. They usually operate their own shops. They have assistants. 
there's a lot of overhead associated with that. You're ordering fresh steer, you know, and, and all this other stuff. So um, as a result of that, you know, it's a fairly expensive occupation. Refrigerated cars absolutely change that. Um, now you're able to take all those cows and pigs, like in the case of, uh, of Cincinnati, that, which was once called Porkopolis, um, all these pigs would then be sent to Cincinnati. Uh, they would then be sent to a centralized location. They would then be slaughtered there um, systematically, like automatically by an automated process. Um, and then workers at that meat packing facility would then dress the meat and then pack it. Then they would load it onto refrigerated cars, take it to stores and sell it that way. Now you don't need butchers. This meat was a lot cheaper. Um, it was almost as fresh. Um, so since beef is cheaper, people want to buy more meat. Since people are buying more meat, this then increases the demand for meat, which then means these meat packing facilities get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So if anybody is wondering why, um, like those of you who are vegetarians or vegans, uh, wondering why the meat industrial complex today is so large, right? That's how it got to start, through refrigerated cars, um, which makes that industry possible. Um, otherwise, that meat would spoil you know, halfway on the trip, uh, getting to the store, you know, because meat has to be constantly refrigerated. So with all these different technological innovations, the light bulb, the phonograph, well, um, oh, I should say the Victrola, uh, all these other things are things that people want to buy. And the Sears Robot Catalog is a good way of doing that. Um, one other thing I'll mention too is um, there's a $1.55 revolver anybody is, is interested, um, you know, be sure you get a license. Um, our department stores. Uh, it's one thing to order a catalog. It's one thing to like, go to Amazon. Um, but it's another thing to actually go to a store. I don't know how many of you actually miss going to stores. I do, like, especially if I'm buying clothes. Um, you know, I like to go there and actually see the clothes, like actually, which is weird because I have Stitch Fix. So some rando person in Silicon Valley just sends me clothes every two months and then I decide I want to buy them. So I don't know. Um, but if I'm going to go out and buy something, I usually like to you know, take a look at it. Um, so there aren't a lot of stores where you're able to do that. Stores are very sort of specialized type of thing. If you want clothes, Generally, you would pay a subscription for a store, right? Because if you're not going to buy stuff all the time, you still have to pay those clerks. So the, the um, economy of actually having a, uh, a store where people can just go and browse around, uh, there's, there's not really a market for that yet until the department store. Uh, Filings, uh, a store in Boston, what they start to do, and they sort of revolutionize this model. Uh, is they call different factories and they look for closeout specials, things that they're trying to get rid of. And then the factories will say, oh yeah, I've got this hundred pair whatever pallet of shoes I'm trying to get rid of, you know, that they were last year's season, nobody wants to buy them anymore. And so filings would say, okay, I'll take them from you for like 30% off uh, or 40% off or whatever. And the factory's just trying to get rid of them. So they'll say, yeah, I mean, I'll give it to you for like next to nothing. We want it out of here. Um, so Filings goes around, they call all these different suppliers and they buy all these different things. And then they open up an entire store with discount clothing and shoes and stuff like that. 
So this is revelatory. They make it an attractive building. You can go in, you can get coffee, you can shop. Window shopping is invented. You can actually go up to a window and see, oh, wow, look at that mannequin that's very nicely dressed, right? I want to go inside and check that out. Um, so this makes shopping it's like a destination in and of itself. People want to do that. The problem is you need workers. Uh, so almost from the very outset, uh, retail work, you know, at least in the late 19th century, early 20th century, I realize a lot of people work retail now. I used to work retail. I was a GameStop uh, third key back in my day. Um, back during the GameCube days, that's, that's how old I, I am. Um, but uh, this, this was seen as women's work, right? So men weren't applying for these jobs. So, but that's actually a positive benefit at this period of time because women were looking for more working opportunities, but you know, because of, of gender discrimination, they were excluded from most occupations. So department stores start popping up all over the country. They need to hire people, so they start hiring uh, women. Uh, the women start working for these stores. Now they have money, which means they now have disposable income, which means they start spending it not just on stuff for their families, but you have a lot of single women, um, a lot of young unmarried women that are also working. Uh, so now they have their own consumer power of their own. Meg Jacobs wrote a great book about this called Pocketbook Politics, uh, where she talks about the, the rise of the, the young single female with a job and the, the different ways in which she was able to spend that money. Um, so the purchasing power and the consumer power um, of women sort of coincided um, you know, with this, this economic growth. There are also a number of new technological innovations that we've already kind of talked a little bit about. Telephones needed switchboard operators. That was very quickly gendered. Uh, so women started filling those jobs. Uh, typewriters were newly invented with the QWERTY keyboard, right? Um, you don't natively know how to type. I still don't know how to type. Um, I'm a published author. I don't know how to type. I still have to kind of look at my keyboard, right? So having the ability to actually type, I had a typist teacher, but she was like me. Uh, and she would just go on rants about my generation. Uh, so I never really learned how to type, even though I had mandatory typing class in high school. Um, so women would, would train to become typists and then fill those jobs. So there are a lot of, um, uh, there are more receptionist jobs because there are more offices, there are more um, businesses because of this booming economy, which means more uh, staff, more assistants, more telephones, more switchboards, more, um, more typewriters, all these different things. Uh, so women start to find a, a, and really create for themselves a growing uh, role within this, um, this new labor economy. And this was at odds with like that Victorian notion of separate spheres, you know, where men go out and work and then women stay home and they sort of, um, you know, raise the kids and, you know, make sure everybody reads the Bible and prays before dinner and, you know, cooks and cleans and all that other stuff. So women are now, you know, bursting out of this, this very limiting uh, sort of sphere uh, and, and uh, occupying newer and growing sort of zones of this kind. Granted, it's still gendered work, but it is work, which is very much a different sort of situation than what they had before. Um, and the reason why that's really, there's a lot of reasons why that's really important, but with respect to progressivism, as women get more money, as they work more, 
as they um, obtain more roles outside the home, women start to become um, more engaged and more active, and they start to demand more of a say, you know, in how the world that they're participating in is run. Um, since women don't yet have the vote, obviously that's gonna be a big part of what's about to happen. Women start to find uh, new ways to make their voices heard. They join temperance societies, for instance, which uh, try to dissuade men from drinking. Uh, they join uh, church groups, they form church groups um, on the basis of improving people's social welfare and things like that. So when I say that progressivism is like a Karen movement, um, it was actually led by sort of like the quote unquote Karens um, in the sense that these were um, more, these were wealthier, uh, generally better to do, um, better educated, uh, more financially secure women. Uh, that had a little more spare time that were then able to devote to these organizations. And so these organizations are really front and center with the progressive movement. Um, it's not so much a political movement, at least at first, as it is a social movement. Um, it's women getting together at church um, and, you know, forming these new organizations um, and deciding what they want to do. One big part of this becomes suffrage right? Giving women the right to vote, um, which is a very long movement. This goes, you know, back all the way to the Revolutionary War when Abigail Adams was like, well, why don't women vote? You know, if you're really committed to gender equality, why don't you do that? Um, you know, or later on at Seneca Falls, um, you know, when uh, the first conference on women's rights takes place, I think 1837, I need to look that up. Um, so there's nothing new about this, but with progressivism, you have a sort of renewed energy and organization um, on suffrage. And so it becomes a very big thing, a much more prominent issue because of these grassroots movements that bring the issue to bear. Sort of like what's happening now with the George Floyd protests, right? Um, it seems like, you know, I've, I've seen some people make the connection, oh, George Floyd is such a you know, you know, why is he specifically, you know, sort of the icon for this movement? Um, you know, I mean, there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, but the real impetus behind that change and the real impetus behind this sort of changing mentality, I think, that we're now witnessing in America doesn't belong exclusively to George Floyd. It's all the people out there protesting and organizing, writing online, talking to their friends, talking to their family, that's the real incubator for change, right? And that's exactly what the progressive movement was. You know, uh, a few suffragettes uh, convinced a few more suffragists. And so women's clubs start um, embracing, I actually uh, had a master's thesis on this. Uh, one of my, my students wrote about this. Uh, women's clubs increasingly by like 1910 start embracing women's suffrage um, as, as something that they should uh, back and support. Whereas before, um, it was so politically contentious that women's clubs sort of shied away from that controversy. But by like 1910, um, they're pretty solidly behind, uh, you know, women's suffrage uh, as, as official policy and as something that the federal government uh, needs to get behind with a constitutional amendment. So a lot of the progressive movement was just exactly that kind of, of change of women um, working, of women spending money, of women uh, enjoying more political and financial 
capital um, and organizational strength. And suffrage is sort of the, the logical, inevitable, and necessary um, you know, culmination of that process. So when we talk about, like the rest of the lecture, we're basically going to talk about progressivism in the context of Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson, um, and like official policies. So we'll, you know, we'll talk about that. But I just really want to point that out. Much like the civil rights movement, uh, the progressive movement wasn't just a couple of presidents uh, who made the right decision about whether or not to sign bills into law, you know, or what to give speeches about. You know, it was run-of-the-mill, everyday people, uh, the same people out there right now protesting um, on behalf of George Floyd and his family um, and other victims of police violence. Those are the people who are really making that change possible. Um, so down the line, you know, you might, um, you know, your children or nieces or nephews or kids in general might read about um, the Trump executive order or, or Gavin Newsom signing a new bill or, you know, leaders today um, making these changes. But, you know, don't forget, it's just everyday people. It's the public um, that really forces that moment of change because if politicians could get away with it, they wouldn't do anything, right? I think most of us can kind of agree on that. You know, they need to have public pressure um, and they need to be told what the right thing to do is. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, who are they working for, right? They work for us. So just bear that in mind. Remember that progressivism and the progressive movement isn't just presidents. It's, it's a much larger um, uh, alliance and collaboration um, and partnership uh, uh, of different people. Coalition, that's the word I was looking for. It's a broader coalition. Okay, so I've talked about the movement a little bit. Let's talk about some of the policies. So Roosevelt, I think we can all kind of agree after reading the Big Burn, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was very much in the vein of the progressives, right? He was more open-minded. He wanted to, to protect the environment. He was a conservationist. Um, he, uh, he wanted um, anti, like he, he was a big uh, user of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Uh, which actually gave the, the government trust-busting uh, anti-monopoly powers. So he used that. He wanted to increase competition. Uh, he was worried about the consolidation and concentration of wealth. He was worried about corruption. But he's also an imperialist in other ways as well. Um, you know, for instance, he was a big believer in making America's uh, foreign policy a little more activistic, uh, but also uh, more visible, right? So speak softly, carry a big stick. He was a really big belief in Alfred Thayer Mahan's um, The Influence of Sea Power. Uh, so that's a very famous book written late 19th century. And basically what Mahan was saying in that book is that sea power is the future of world diplomacy and world military fighting. You know, if you remember, like, the Civil War, the two really, really big, huge wars of the, the 19th century, the Civil War in America and the Napoleonic Wars. The Napoleonic War had, you know, a lot of sea fighting, um, you know, and it had uh, France, or really, it was, it was Britain, trying to keep American um, ships out of France. But after the Battle of Trafalgar, um, 
you know, when uh, Napoleon's fleet was completely shot up. Uh, there wasn't really a whole lot of, of sea power involved with that. Similarly with the, the Civil War, right? It was very one-sided, uh, just like sea power is very one-sided after Trafalgar during the, the Napoleonic Wars. But Mahan argues that, well, it's not just going to be Britain and America. It's going to be a lot of different countries, right? Sea power is now the key to trade, right? Everybody already realizes this because if you have overseas colonies, you need ships to trade with them. Um, but because of that, sea power is also going to be very militarily important. So Roosevelt reads this book. He's a big reader. He's a, he's a smart guy. Um, and so he wants to build up the American fleet. He wants to have a bi-coastal fleet, but he also wants to have a connector uh, between those two fleets so we can easily shuffle ships back and forth instead of moving them all the way around um, you know, South America, like you see here. Um, so as a result of that, he, he embarks on this very old um, project of building a canal across the Isthmus of Panama. It takes him a very long time, um, and he has to do some creative diplomatic maneuvering in order to get it done, but he gets it done by 1913. Uh, and, and I think actually references in the quiz. So uh, basically the story is uh, Panama is part of Colombia. Panamanians are fighting for independence. And so Roosevelt, you know, sends a, an envoy down there and says, hey, we'll help you out. Uh, we'll send you some arms. We'll recognize your independence once you declare it. But the deal is you have to give us a canal, uh, canal zone, right? So you're going to give us like a five, I think it's like a 10 mile wide strip um, across your country that we control and that we're able to build a uh, canal across it. And then, and I forget what the, the number of years was for the lease. Um, it's like an 80 or 90 year lease or something like that. Uh, after a certain amount of time, we'll give you back the canal zone. Uh, and so Panamanians say, okay, great. So Panama declares independence. Roosevelt almost immediately signs on to it. Uh, then the rest of the international community signs on to it as well. Panama becomes an independent country. And so then the United States um, becomes essentially the, the, uh, the sovereign authority of the Panama Canal Zone. So then they build it. And this was no small thing, right? You're talking a 50, 50 mile canal um, through a mountain range, okay? Uh, through malaria infested uh, jungle. In fact, um, one really weird bit of trivia, if you're ever asked this in like a pub trivia game or something like that, uh, there is this little area here in Southern Panama called the Darien Gap. Uh, and to this day, there's no reliable road that goes through it, uh, due in part to A, the thickness of the, the foliage, but also there's a long-running guerrilla war um, going on there between different elements in Panama and different guerrillas in, in Colombia. So it's, it's basically a continuing war zone. So if you're able, ever able to take the uh, Trans-American Highway, uh, the highway that goes all the way from America all the way down to um, you know, like the southern tip of, of South America. Uh, you actually have to take a ferry uh, to go from Panama down to Colombia. And the reason for that is because the, tra the Trans-American Highway doesn't actually cross that very vital uh, link between North and South America. So technically, there's no reliable road connecting North and South America, which seems strange because there's land there. Um, but Anyway, so Panama is not the easiest place to build a canal. Uh, nonetheless, they, they do it. 
Um, so that's sort of progressivism, you know, in a nutshell. How can we make the world better? How can we make our situation better uh, for our people, for America, for our businesses? And so that was sort of one of those smart projects that I kind of went to that. Uh, uh, so Roosevelt, you know, was very much like an interventionist. Um, one good thing he did, and he actually won the Nobel Peace Prize for this, uh, was he helped broker peace between Russia and Japan uh, when they fought a war against each other. So I, I think I mentioned last week uh, that Japan was also sort of in a similar boat to America's, two new global powers without global recognition because they didn't have uh, like a, a string of imperialist colonies. So America gets their colonies by fighting and beating Spain in war. Japan gets theirs by fighting and beating Russia in a war. Um, so uh, Roosevelt actually helps broker that peace um, and in 1905 and then the Peace Prize for it. So, you know, he, he's a big believer in, in peace, but, you know, he's also not afraid to throw his weight around. Um, so in any case, like that's, that's sort of like the imperialistic project. It's ostensibly about self-determination and giving people like Panama uh, the ability to sort of dictate their own affairs. Um, unless, of course, it uh, goes against American policy, which is sort of true today too, right? Um, but, you know, I think that's when we really start to see this shift in public opinion about America. America as not just a protector of American democracy, but as an exponent, an exporter of democracy, as a guarantor of democracy elsewhere. Uh, the progressive movement is when Americans really start to kind of make that shift. Um, of course, World War I will take us in the opposite direction with isolationism. Um, but you start to see that, that thought process work itself out uh, during the progressive movement. And uh, we'll sort of pick up on that when we talk about World War I, um, because I think that is sort of key to really understanding not necessarily how and why America enters World War I, um, but I think it goes a really long way in explaining how we justify the war to ourselves um, with all the death and all the destruction and all the trauma and all the money and all the dislocation and sending Eugene Debs to jail and basically destroying uh, German uh, culture in America. Um, so all those things weren't for naught. There had to be some rationale for it. And I think that's, that's you know, whereas like France and Britain were at for revenge, I think America uh, really wanted to see this as the war to end all wars and sort of look at it as an opportunity to make progressive change. Any questions? Adam. When did the antitrust legislation first go in? I'd have to look at my notes. I want to say it was 1887. Somebody can please look that up for me. Um, the Sherman Antitrust Act is, is what I'm talking about. So I think that was 1887, but I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it was a little bit like the Forest Reserve Act. Uh, so it was, a, it was passed around the same time but it was sort of underutilized until Roosevelt goes into office. So I think one of the things that Roosevelt did was he sort of rediscovered and re-embraced like the powers of the presidency. 
uh, you know, in a way that hadn't really been done since Lincoln. Um, and so that was one of the tools that is Arsenal. So. Cool. Thanks. Yep. Other questions? Okay. Uh, hey, we ended at an hour. That's pretty good. Um, so we'll try to do that again tomorrow. Um, so we can all do other things. So anyway, thank you as always for watching. I'm going to stop recording now and I will see you guys tomorrow.